Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Avast me hearties, hoist the main brace for yet again, James Holland and I, and we have ways of making you talk, are nautical, aren't we James? Yeah, it's nautical, nautical but day. nice. Nautical but nice. <laughs> nice but nautical. Um, and James, I've got a question for you. Uh, what's got a crocodile and a grizzly? And about 46 metres long. Yeah. It is a well, I think it is a landing craft tank, isn't it? Yeah. 7074? 7074. Here and I've got to say, you know, here we are standing up in the in the bridge. Are we in the bridge, Steve? We're on the bridge, yeah. We're on the bridge. And <laughs> Stephen Fisher's joined us, by the way. We should, we should, yeah, we old should, friend of the podcast. Old friend of the podcast. Um, but I should add that, that the 
overwhelming sensation I've got is just how big it is and just how high up and vulnerable you are sitting in the bridge going towards Gold Beach. Well, yes. Um, those of you who maybe listen to us in F8, the, which is a sort of, you know... It's a baby landing It's a cost. baby one of these. This is basically like someone has taken a foot pump and inflated F8. <laughs> <laughs> like that, Got a couple so, of kind of so that it, rather, than, on it. rather than holding thirty-five people, it will hold, um, in theory, ten tanks. Yep, ten tanks. Uh, te- in theory, ten Shermans, but easily smaller ones than that as well. Gosh, I mean, it's so brilliant. It's I, so I, brilliant. It just is absolutely brilliant. But and obviously, this is a big thing for me because this is exactly what the Sherwood Rangers were going across to Normandy, and so you know, I'm a bit obsessed with that, as you know. Yeah, yeah. So, Stephen, tell us the the. The history of this boat, the story of this, is it is a vessel? I'm going to go. Is it, is it or is it a craft? craft? <laughs> yeah, well, um, hmm. um, let's just call it an LCT. Let's just call it an LCT. So, what's the story? Um, the story of this LC, LCT? It's Providence and how it ended up here. You know, with a, in gleaming condition. So, LCT 7074 is a Mark III landing craft. Um, it was built just before D-Day, and we can trace some of that story back to uh, a certain Churchill who um, wanted extra landing craft and, and sent various members saying, we're in a situation with our landing craft and we must have more. Very good. <laughs> Very strong. And, yeah. uh, thank you. <laughs> and um, whenever Churchill sends a memo, there's obviously a lot of immediate flurry of, of memos back and forth and panic and what are we doing? Um, and one of the solutions was building more landing craft using petrol engines that the US had supplied, Sterling Admiral engines. And there were plans in hand to convert existing landing craft models to accommodate Sterling Admiral engines, and this is one of them that was then built. So, keel wasn't even laid until December 1943, which yeah, was launched wow. in April, start of April. So, you know, her time to work up before D Day is less than two months. They built in Newcastle? Uh, she was built, yes, at um, Hawthorne Leslie um, shipyard on the Tyne. Though you say keel was laid, this this doesn't have a keel. <laughs> does it, it? it does have a sort of keel just down the middle. It's Landing craft are obviously very different types of vessel to all sorts of, you know, the, the traditional bilge uh, hull and that sort of thing. So she has got a central box section. Maybe a better word for it would be a sort of spine right. against which all of the other hollow box sections that make up the lower part of the vessel are, are, are connected. Um, but yeah, it's not in the traditional sense at all. So keel being laid is a very nautical phrase for we started. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah it's not in the traditional sense. You're very right. Um, but they, they started in, in late December, and basically it's a succession of assembled bits um, that were pre-assembled in workshops at Hawthorne Lesley and then brought out onto the slipway where this was being built and just sort of bolted on, Riveted riveted together. On. Yeah, exactly, um, over the course of a couple of months, and, and then, yeah, launched into the water without ceremony, um, which is Amazing. quite typical for landing craft. And... Um, the archives up at Newcastle were able to provide some of the details of her building that came from the Hawthorne Leslie records. So we know even the time of day that she was launched. I think it was about 7.30 in the evening on the, don't quote me, I think the 4th of April. But all these dates are now slipping out So brand out new for mind. D-Day, basically. Basically, yes. And this whole series of the LCT Mark III star, uh, which is that little addition to it to differentiate it from the older Mark III. Like a Lee Enfield rifle. Yeah. Exactly. Um, because it had the Sterling Admiral engine, so it's slightly different. Um, and so it required different operating procedures, so they had to designate it a little bit differently. But to look at, she's almost identical to the Mark III that the Sherwood Rangers crossed to, the mm-hmm. swimming DDs crossed on. And, and, and give me the specs, Steve. I mean, you know, I, I just 
banded around 46 metres long. Is it 46 metres long? No, it's uh, 59 metres long. 59 metres long. Even bigger, Jim. Even yeah. bigger. She, I okay. hope I've got that right. Anyway, she is pretty much the same length as HMS Victory, um, if you took the bow spirit wow. off Victory. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's and amazing. It's, it's not immediately apparent, really, until you actually sort of you know break down the, the bits of her, if you like. But, yeah, she's she's a sizable vessel, and you're both saying you know, she's much bigger than you imagined. Of course, when you see landing craft in photos and stuff, they're normally passing by a battleship or, or some much yes. larger ship so the sense of scale you get is of something quite small by yep. comparison with the regular navy but you know in reality like you say a, a big old vessel but if this resembles anything um anyone might have been on it's like a tiny car ferry isn't it, mm. it yeah if it's, it's like if those it's, ones that go across the fjords in yeah if in it's Norway. like if it's like anything it's it's like that so there's the yep. a ramp at the front I mean, it, and it very, very much is a box, isn't it? This, mm. uh, uh, as as ships go, it is flat bottom and you know, straight sides and almost a, a flat front, and yeah, the back's not dissimilar. It, your analogy to F eight and being an inflated version is is very good actually, because she has all of the same componentry, the same designs, the same layout as F eight, just on a much larger scale. Yeah, um, very simplistic vessel that has one sole purpose, and that is to transport troops, the army, uh, across a body of water and to land them onto a beach, hence yeah. the huge bow ramp at the front. And what sort of speed are we talking about? Can you say nottage? No, you can't say nottage, can you? I mean, what kind of knots. speed are you doing? Uh, ten knots is the most you can ten hope knots. to achieve on something like this, and that's on a good day with the wind behind you. Okay, so <laughs> I'm just imagining, you know, what, what have you got? You've got a... a, a, what's, a how bad is it on D-Day? Force four at the Force worst. Force four, yeah. okay, so how tricky? I mean, because... Uh, I'm sort of, I mean, we've all been with a sort of very, very heavy shopping trolley and it's in, <laughs> and you've got a lot in it and, and it's really hard to manoeuvre around those aisles of Tesco, yeah, isn't it? With a wonky wheel that's not operating. Exactly. Yet. And I'm just imagining, you know, you're, you're here on the bridge. I mean, how difficult is it to to operate and manoeuvre one of these with something so, that's so big, so heavy and, and flat-bottomed? If, if you're of a, a, a nautical mind, um, take everything that you know about sailing and forget it because none of it <laughs> applies to a vessel like this. With a flat bottom, there's, there's no keel to, to help steer your passage through the water. You've got two engines down below, um, two rudders. Both the engines are rotating the propeller the same way. So essentially what oh. your landing craft is doing is crabbing a bit. There's no contraflow on two opposite direction engines to help keep her in a straight line. So that, that would have just been too complicated, would it? Uh, yeah, basically. Right. Um, so make everything simple in terms of building the things yeah. and, and just shove two engines that do the same but, thing. But she must, she, mu she must grip the water better when you've got your 10 Sherman tanks in, though. Yes. So she carries a lot more weight once you've got all of that on, and she'll, she'll ride in the water a, a bit deeper. But then, of course, you have all sorts of problems with momentum and stopping her and, yeah. and turning her as well. And... Landing craft tank tended to drift when you turn, so that the back, sit, the, where the rear is, the propellers and the rudders, you turn them, and straight away the back starts to kick out, like oversteer in a car. Right. Uh, and your, yes. your rear will turn in a wider arc than your bow. Um, and, of course, this is all happening in essentially slow motion, because at 10 knots it's not going particularly fast, but there's very little you can do to stop it once it's started, so you have to be able to preempt the movement of the vessel. Yeah. I mean, just, just imagine you're on D-Day and you're on one of these, and you're coming to the shore on Gold Beach, and the, the lanes that you think have been cleared through the beach obstacles haven't. The, the tide is rising. All you can see is these little 
you know, white horses where the water is going over these beach obstacles, and you're thinking, right, I've got to try right. and dodge well, those. Who are you being? You're, are you being the crew on the... Yeah. Right, right, the, so oh, the guy well, captain in... We, we, is, I mean, is it a coxswain, like, on the, on the LCA, or is it...? Yes, so right. the, the steerer is always called the coxswain okay. or coxswain. So the, so the coxswain... Is a sub-lieutenant so or, or... Yeah, lieutenant. but you're looking for his point of view. If you're the major down there, mm. um, going, you're going, get my bloody men off the... Get my, I need to get my bloody tanks on the beach. He's, well, he's yelling at him, isn't mm-hmm. he? Surely... You know, yeah. what do you mean we're in the but wrong place? How? Why aren't we on the lane? You know, you've got that, that, I mean, let's call it a dialogue. It's probably a monologue coming from, coming from the, the guys in the tanks down there. But you know. how could you possibly steer this through beach obstacles? You couldn't. So the instructions in <laughs> Force S were very simplistic. If, if the obstacles haven't been cleared, ram them. Um, just charge on through as... The, almost the exact wording that's in the Force S orders. And um, one of the, the subsequent reports that Admiral Ramsey wrote, was that Ramsey? One of the reports, anyway, from the, the Eastern Beaches afterwards looked into the role of landing craft obstacle clearance units and they said they were very good, but they weren't able to clear obstacles at the rate that we hoped. The biggest clearance of obstacles was thanks to landing craft just driving through them. Um, so you end up wow. with lots of landing craft hitting these obstacles, doing all sorts of damage to their bows, and then limping back to the UK, or, of course, getting stuck on the beach, as, as so many were. Um, so steering, once you get onto the beach, is it, it's not steering, it's, it's getting ashore. Right. There's a certain uh, point where you just let the craft ride up onto the shore. And why they're all landing in not precisely where they should do. For, you know, I mean, you can just see why, can't you? It, standing here, you know, you've got a wind coming at, at, at sort of 90 degrees to the angle which you're trying yeah. to hit the beach. You can absolutely see it from here, that this would be kind of going all over the place. Don't you think? Yeah. Oh, completely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but I'm looking down there and I'm thinking about all these lovely tanks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, how, ma- how many of these were made? And presumably, you know, the, the Americans are building LCTs, we're building LCTs. It's the same, basically the same design, right? Sort of, yeah. So we started with the LCT Mark I in 1940. So, um, was that, so that was British design? British design. And that was quickly followed by the Mark II. And then almost as quickly, before most of the Mark I's had even entered the water, they've designed the Mark III. These were designed very quickly in consultation with shipbuilders. There was no admiralty requirement issued saying we needed to do this, this, and this, and specified you know, right. plans and stuff. They, they literally just started building these as quickly as they could. So um, the Mark III is, is not massively dissimilar to the Mark I. It's just longer, right. essentially. There are some other changes in the engines and... and particularly the crew arrangements. The Mark I didn't have any crew accommodation. There was this expectation that crew could live ashore, but that was quickly realised to be completely impossible. So there's, there's crew accommodation on these, and we can have a look at that later. Um, but then the, the Mark IV was the first one they issued an Admiralty spec for, because by 1941, there's a realisation that we're probably going to be landing in France, obviously, but also possibly not Calais, maybe Normandy, where the beach gradients are much shallower than the Mark I to III had been designed for. So they needed a new type of landing craft that could land on a much shallower beach, uh, one in 200. Um, so they then issue a staff requirement for a Mark IV landing craft. It's the first one that actually gets a, you know, the proper origins of a vessel behind it in, in naval terms. And um, 
yeah, the, the Mark IV is born. The Mark IV is a very different type of landing craft. The, the tank deck is above the waterline rather than below it, as is here, um, and it is designed purely for cross-channel operations. There's no expectation of it being able to go much further than that. It is literally get troops across the English Channel for the return to Europe. Um, then the Americans come on board um, into the war, obviously. Uh, British mission goes across to uh, America. They want to start building landing craft. As it happens, Fornicroft, who built or designed F-8, um, had a, a plan for a, a sort of ferry-style landing craft. And they gave the plan to the Americans. They said, this is perfect. And they start building that. That's the Mark V. So very much a British design, American built. That evolves into the Mark VI, which they also build. Uh, and then the Mark VII, which is transferred to something else. It gets very complicated. And then at the very end of the war, we build the Mark VIII. But they arrive a bit too late to, to have any effect on the war. The war has ended by the time they're in service. So do, we, do you have any idea how many landing craft LCTs were, were built during the war? Uh, so we built oh, 1,155 <laughs> and the US <laughs> built 1,980. So Dear something like God. that. So many, isn't it? And there's only that I know of, of landing craft tank, four survivors. There's uh, one in the US, there's one in Israel, which is an ex-British Mark II, there's one that I recently discovered during the course of the restoration project for this vessel in Poland, which has been converted into a floating playhouse, um, and this one. Amazing. Amazing. That really is amazing. Well, should we go down onto the tank deck? What's, the, what's, what's it called, the, that deck? That is the tank deck. It's called yes. the tank deck. Good. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm such a landlubber, but I got that one right. Yeah, well done. Brilliant. Come on, let's go. Right, okay, we're down on the tank deck now, and James is leaning very casually on a, a Churchill crocodile. Yeah. Aren't you, Jim? I wore yeah, my yeah, 79th Armoured Division uh, T-shirt, and you've got, got my your, little, my little badge. your pin, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you must be pleased to see this here. Yeah, I mean, I, I like a crocodile. I know. It hasn't got the trailer, <laughs> but that, that, that doesn't okay. matter. I mean, what this, what this demonstrates, because there's room for a second here, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. Right? And, and after all, I mean, the, it's the well-worn thing that British tanks are designed to fit on British trains... Yep. Aren't they? And through on British railway gauges, mm -hmm. but you've also got so that's baked into this design too, and which, and therefore, Sherman's will fit in it. Everything, basically, everything the Allies have got, yeah, vehicle-wise, will fit in here, to abreast. Yes, exactly. So, there, like I said, there wasn't really a design requirement for these vessels, but part of the spec they worked out was it had to be able to fit two of our largest tanks at the time, and I think that was. The, uh, the Churchill, so yeah. that was part of the requirement. The Mark IV that came later was designed to fit three tanks abreast, so it's a, a slightly wider one. Wow. Goodness me. That would have been a I mean, I, I know I keep saying this, I cannot get over how, A, the scale, and B, how cumbersome they must be to operate. Yeah. But there's no other way of doing it. No, there isn't. There's the thing, there is no clever design. There's no, there's no, you know, retractable keel you could use is there because, <laughs> no. the, because the, the depths you're the depths you're working at the, the and it's also it's the it's the critical part of its function yeah getting people up onto the beach there's no other way of doing it just sort of exactly i don't know no, yeah. but, my, but that but my point is my admiration and awe for what was achieved on d-day has oh, yeah. just gone up another level and it was pretty high already <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you were pretty in you know <laughs> into it in the first place <laughs> <laughs> but i just think it's absolutely incredible i mean i just don't know how anyone i mean i know no one landed in the right place but you know you can totally totally understand why now. yeah yeah uh, which makes the success on d-day all the more remarkable i think yeah 
But you see, some of the landing craft did land pretty much where they needed to, especially you know, for people who had to be almost precise. It was actually the first wave carrying the AVREs. And some of them, on not so much on gold, which all went a bit wrong, but um, on some of the other beaches, Juno and Sword, they, they did. They landed exactly where they needed to for the lane to be cleared where it was planned to clear it. So, you know, they, they, the crews got quite adept at operating these, even though they're a complete pig to, to try and steer in, in normal um, sailing uh, skills, uh, you know, they, they could achieve very good things with these, and and they they did, they managed it. Yeah. Um, let's not say it's easy, yeah. but this became their home, and this became their job was to master these vessels. That, as you say, there's, there's no other way to design them. They have to be flat-bottomed, ungainly vessels that you know, have this sole purpose. But through practice and, and experience, and you know, knowing how to operate them, they. They could do it. Yeah. How many? Um, how many? What is the crew complement? Because we haven't we haven't touched on that. It's what? not many. So it's ten men usually, two officers and, and ten ratings. And right. again, it's it's really just to operate all of the, the necessary parts of the vessel. So you have two engineers operating the engines. You have the two officers who would be up on the bridge, and the first officer would be down at the bow to lower lower the ramp when they get onto the shore. He'll have two ratings to help him because they yep. need to drop the ramp and then winch it back up, which yep. needs two men this time because it's such a big ramp. Much heavier, yeah. Yep. Exactly. Um, and then you will have uh, two men on the, the orlicans up on the, the deck. Um, These are the cannons? Yeah, yep. so this, this is its only form of defence, 20mm orlicans, uh, mainly anti-aircraft defence. But on D-Day, of course, these gunners were were firing onto the, the beach positions as they came into the shore. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's very, very functional. It's minimal crew um, because there's there's minimal things to do on it, really. Yeah. It's that yeah, yeah, sole yeah. purpose, again, is just to get onto a beach. And, Steve, looking looking up at, back up at the bridge, we've got we've got a motto. Yep. Uh, we've got some numbering. Then we've got, a, we've got a sort of blackboard over the top of it with more numbering. Yeah. Can you, can you talk us through all that? So... Well, so there's, L, there's the... It's, uh, um, LCT seven oh seven four. Yeah. So there's one number. Mm -hmm. So what's H? Right. LCT. HLCT. So on the bow as well. On the outside, you see this in a different arrangement of HLCT seven oh seven four and then seventeen underneath it. So this is part of the research I did for the restoration of this vessel was the the requirements for marking up for D Day and the Force L of which she was a part orders gave very detailed instructions. So H is her squadron. So there are two flotillas in H Squadron. Um, so that's marking her squadron. And then 17 is the flotilla that she was in. And on the bow, 17 is underneath. That's exactly as it's laid out in the Admiralty instructions for four cells. So they're saying you will mark up your vessel in this way, in red paint. Do it or else. And we see in various different photographs of four cells. In L, red paint? Yeah. In, in some colour film that we've seen of uh, one of the four-cell landing craft, they didn't bother with red. The pennant was already in black, so they just painted the, the squadron and the flotilla numbers in red. So you've got a red and black crossover. Um, we don't have any colour photos of 7074, so we've assumed that they did it yeah. as the fleet instructions required them to. And then we've got that second number, the, the blackboard, with 3517 on it. And this is the the master number behind D-Day. This is the landing table index number. So for D-Day, um, combined operations again, this had all been codified back in 1942, how to organize an amphibious assault. And what you need to do is get the army to organize their troops into tactical formations uh, and decide who they want to land and where and when. Then they pass that information back to the Royal Navy and they say, right, well, we can give you these landing craft. Um, and then they start formulating the plan to so we'll put this platoon on this landing craft, this tank on this landing craft. And so you, you work out a tactical formation for each individual vessel. 
And then you tell all of the infantry, okay, you're on this vessel, vessel A. And you're on this vessel, you'll be on vessel B. But there's 4,000 landing craft on D-Day, so the alphabet isn't going to stretch that far. So you come up with what's called the landing tables, um, which dictate exactly who is going to be on each landing craft, and then a landing table index number. And that index number is your code number. It says that you are on the vessel that will be code numbered 3517 in this case. And then you tell the Royal Navy, okay, we've got these 10 vessel loads, we need 10 LCT Mark III. And the Royal Navy says, okay, sorted. And then they allocate those same landing table index numbers to 10 of their landing craft. The beauty is that the soldiers don't need to remember flotilla numbers or squadrons or landing craft pennants. They just need to remember their landing table index number, that sole number, 3517. And you've got troops from four or five different units, regiments, all assigned to that vessel. They don't need to remember anything else other than that one number. It also means, presumably, if, if, if something goes wrong, yep. you can switch your ship without having Exactly. To... So if your landing craft breaks down a few days before it's due to embark, then you literally just assign the landing table index number to another landing craft. The army are none the wiser. So the landing table index number is the key number behind every landing craft on D-Day. It tells you who loaded onto what landing craft. Right. The problem is, of course, then trying to match your landing table index numbers to your landing craft because there's no real master document for this. Right. And it's a case of piecing that together with photographic evidence um, or some order documents do match landing table index numbers to specific LCTs. And in the four cell orders, I actually found such a document giving a list of the flotillas and saying, right, you will get these landing table index numbers and so forth. Even so, I wasn't happy with that because they might change it, as yep. you say, because yep. something breaks down. But then I found photographs and we were able to match the landing table index number to the pennant. So we know that that is the landing table index number for 7074. And we got a photo of it as well, showing the bridge absolutely clearly. Like and it looks exactly like that. So we were able to mark up the bridge exactly as it appeared on D-Day. And the motto, Dum Spiro Spero. Yes, it's Latin for um, as I breathe I am or something along right. those lines. So a working theory I have is um, that the skipper, um, uh, Sub-Lieutenant Baggett, uh, was born around Swindon and there's a, a school near there um, and that's the motto of that school. Ah. And I think that might be the origin, but I, I have contacted the school. I haven't had a reply, unfortunately. Don't know sure. So I don't know if he attended that school. Okay. It's a bit of a working theory, but yeah, yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Now, there's it's a Sherman one, tank up there, or it's a grizzly, isn't it? Strictly speaking. He's strictly a strictly grizzly. Strictly speaking, yeah. a grizzly. Um, which means it has a cast hull, doesn't it, James? That's a grizzly. Yes. yes. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, it's a Sherman tank, really. Yeah, but it is yeah it's a Canadian-built Sherman, basically. Yeah. Rather than, you think. prefer the straight sides? I prefer the straight sides. Uh, okay. You like the moulder, do you? Uh, well, I quite, I quite like the hybrid that has uh, straight sides and a, and a cast front. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a very rough-hewn... That's really uh, just stuck on top, isn't it? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Right. So, these two tanks were previously outside the D-Day story before it had its big Heritage Lottery-funded refit a few right. years ago. Um, and with the decision that um, LCT 7074 would move to in front of the D-Day story, um, it was a sort of no-brainer to put them here on the landing yeah. craft. So 7074 was restored by the National Museum of the Royal Navy with Heritage Lottery funding, and um, it's part of their historic fleet. So it's part of the same collection as Victory and Warrior, uh, M33, all of those vessels. But it's here as part of the D-Day story, so visitors to the D-Day story buy their ticket and they, they can come yeah. aboard. So it's part of that visitor experience. Um, and it's wonderful. Um, but the <laughs> tanks, 
didn't have a, a huge amount of heritage to them. They were just display tanks outside, and nobody really knows the story to this particular tank. Um, so we didn't feel bad about creating a story for it, if right. you like, because we know the story of one of the tanks that was on 7074. Brilliant. Which is nice. Um, and that's, again, all courtesy of that landing table index number. Mm. So 7074 arrives off the beaches late in the evening of D-Day, almost around midnight. Um, but Gold Beach hasn't gone quite to plan on D-Day, so the, the chances of beaching on D-Day itself are nil. Basically, the beachmaster says no. Uh, and she's ordered to wait off the beaches until the following morning, the 7th of June, when she lands. About nine o'clock in the morning, loses one of This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Her Stuart tanks, which we were able to identify from a photograph taken on Gold Beach that afternoon, yep. courtesy of the landing table index number, which has been painted onto the hull of the tank. Right. This is very nice. Um, we had an idea of the load from the landing table, so we knew that she was supposed to carry two Shermans, a Cromwell, and seven Stuarts. So yep. we've got one Stuart accounted for. So there's a case of trying to find the other tanks. And basically, through Googling tanks, Normandy, for a very long time and just searching through images, I found one that had the same landing table index number How on. How brilliant. <laughs> Proper detective work. So yeah. if we come round to the front, 
There this, we are. This Some is, division. Yep. Exactly, yeah. So the desert rat up at the top. Um, these markings are all taken from a photograph of a tank that we found, I found um, online um, from a, actually quite a famous series of photographs taken in Villas Bocage yeah. ah. after the action on was the, the 13th out? of June. It was. So this is a, it's, it's a tank, but it's actually part of 5th Royal Horse Artillery. So it was an observation post tank. Right. It had yes, its yes. gun barrel removed. So it's got a wooden gun barrel. A wooden gun barrel, um, so that there was more room in the turret for map tables and radios. Um, so not actually a tank anymore. She's been converted to be a forward observation yeah, post. A, yeah, an FOO. Exactly, yeah. Gosh. Who gets knocked the, out by Michael Vittman. And exactly, yes. Does it? And I know the picture. And it does get knocked out. the picture in your head, yeah. So this one was commanded by Major Dennis Wells. Fifth Royal Horse Artillery. He was the commander of um, K Battery, and his presence in, in Villas Bocage is well known because Villas Bocage, of course, has been picked apart, and lots of stories have emerged from Villas Bocage and Michael Whitman's involvement. And yeah. we don't yeah, need yeah, to yeah, go yeah. into tough, that, yeah, yeah. but there is Whatever. some very simple facts that he did come down the road and turn onto the high street and knock out several tanks. Yeah. And one of those was Major Dennis Wells' observation post Sherman tank. And what um, happened to Major Dennis Wells? He was injured, uh, but he managed to crawl off and get back to his own lines. So did his driver, Charles Ray. Right. And I was able to speak to his son um, and no. you know, get some of his, his recollections of what had happened um, on that day. Um, and so we were able to piece together the, the loss of this tank. It was stationary at the time that Whitman came around the corner. He put one shell just in front of the tank, and there's a big crater in that photograph, you can see. Yeah. Charles Ray ducks out of the driver's position and escapes through the bottom hatch. Um, and Whitman puts another shell straight into the turret and disables the tank. The, the wooden gun barrel is blasted off, and you can see it's splintered timber yeah. lying in front of it in, in the photograph. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... What's beautiful, though, in that photograph is all of this detail. So the, the tank number, uh, sorry, the, the unit number, 16030, that means 5th Royal Horse Artillery, the insignia for the Desert Rats and 76, indicating its formation within the 7th Armoured Division, the battery command post uh, marking, yep. and the landing table index number, which proves beyond a doubt that it was on 7074. Amazing. So given that, that this... That is absolutely brilliant. This tank had no real provenance of its own from being outside the D-Day story. It's a grizzly rather than a Sherman. Yeah. But, oh, God, as if we're not going to recreate a yeah. tank that was literally in this spot when this tank was going over to Normandy for D-Day. It was a no-brainer. So it's, it's yeah. really fantastic to be able to not just tell the story of the landing craft itself, but the story of the tanks that were on it. That's yeah. absolutely brilliant. That's incredible. Yeah, really is. I, and I agree. I know that photo. Yeah. Yeah. There's an after the battle book on yeah, the yeah, yeah, There yeah. is, yeah, by yeah. Dan Taylor. Um, right. And Dan was very helpful. I, I contacted him as well, and he was able to shed a bit more light on the story, put me in charge, uh, sorry, put me in touch with Charles Ray's son, and, and you know, really add to that story of, of some of the troopers who had crossed over on 7074. What an incredible. What an incredible way of bringing this place to life! That yeah, it's really fantastic, that is isn't a, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And f and also that it's such a famous encounter mm. that you can you Infamous. can it, notorious. It's a notorious. double-edged sword, <laughs> yeah. you know. To be able to connect 
this landing craft to Michael Whitman in a way to such a famous encounter like you say is is great but at the same time it's also sort of like oh no <laughs> yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Well, as if he That's needs so any more yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. yeah but it Gosh. is brilliant it's, a, it's an amazing coincidence isn't it now, it can is we look, yeah. can we look at the crew quarters yeah I'd like to look at the crew quarters I also want to look at it from the outside as well we can do that but once we've got out but we're, right. th we're not going to get out and get back in yeah yeah, yeah come on <laughs> <laughs>Okay, as you can tell from the ambience on our microphones, we are no longer in the, on the tank deck. We're inside um, LCT7074. And what, this is the crew quarters? Sort of. So where we're actually stood is where the engines were. Right. Um, they were removed post-war um, because 1945, 7074 gets a bit of a makeover. She's turned into a floating repair vessel to go to the Far East. The war ends before it has time to go out there. So it's left in Liverpool where it was being converted. Uh, and in 1947, she was taken over by the Liverpool Master Mariners Club, uh, who turned her into a floating clubhouse. Right. And it became their meeting place. And then in the 70s, it was taken over again and became a floating nightclub. Um, so the engines were removed some time ago. So having this tiny bit of internal space that's accessible, um, this is now a bit of interpretive space for yeah. displays and, and panels and that sort of thing. The crew accommodation was immediately behind the engines. So that space immediately behind there was a bulkhead here you can see where it's kind of been yeah. cut away but the crew lived there basically the officers had a little bit nicer they were just up by the bridge and they had their own cabins so the the officers always have a wardroom on the royal navy yeah. ship and this is no exception the crew sort of slum it down here immediately behind the, the ever so noisy engines in quite a small space the only access being a hatch onto the upper deck um, so 10 men would live down here. Their, their worldly possessions would be in the small little lockers that they get yeah. up on the deckhead. Um, meals were prepared in a tiny little galley uh, next to the officer's mess, and I mean tiny. Um, and yeah, they would somehow get them down the stepladder <laughs> into here yeah. so that they could eat. Uh, so it is really, really basic. It's incredibly basic, isn't it? Yeah. But, then, but then this isn't a... Uh, an ocean-going vessel, strictly speaking, is it? You know, it, it's a it's a ferry, really, isn't it? It is. It, it's a ferry, but the crew had to live aboard because with that many landing craft in the fleet, you can't accommodate them all can't ashore. Them, can you? No. No. So, so the crew had to live on board even when they were in port. Um, and of course, some of them did have to sail quite long distances. Post D-Day, you start sending massive convoys of these out to the Far East through the Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal, and so into they've got, the Bay they've of Biscay. They got to sail the whole way. Yeah. There's, there's no other way to get them out there. God. Um, How long did that take? Uh, several weeks, months almost. Um, yeah. And several of them got out there before the war ended. You know, several were, were dispatched for operations on the Burmese coast. Um, so sometimes they did have to spend an awfully long time on these. Now, admittedly, when they're going to the Far East, the, the tank deck is empty. and It's just got stores and supplies on it. So they've got a bit more space. Um, but even so, you know, living in, in this kind of environment for such a long period of time is, is hard work. It's no fun at yeah, all, isn't it? Mm. Incredible. Look at that. Okay, I have to say, this is a very interesting camouflage pattern. <laughs> Thank you. I think it is a fascinating <laughs> camouflage pattern. <laughs> <laughs> Should we just try and describe it? Yeah. So it's, it's, there's black at the bottom. With a straight line, so like a waterline black line. Yeah. yeah. Then there's lots of white bits, and then there's some bluey grey bits. Yes, but we can do better than that, James. Okay, you can. Well, they're kind of they're, they're kind of they're shaped, aren't they? So they're they're 
sort wave of abstract like wave-like. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the standard pattern for, for landing craft um, camouflage. Uh, so again, this was all laid out in, in Admiralty documents. And um, getting the, the colors precisely right is a bit of a challenge because color photography from the era isn't great. And you know, it's hard to work out exactly what they've done. But essentially, it's a sort of blue-gray um, and a white. Black for below the waterline, as you say. What's really interesting is if you come here on a, a grey day with a slightly overcast sky, a bit like today, um, and look at it from a distance, you can see how well this mirrors the, the sort of outside environment. The sort of white and grey clouds really blend very nicely with the, the camouflage colours. It's not so much just you know camouflage to blend her in with the sea, it's also to blend her in with the sky. And I think it works really well. Yeah. Uh, it's very, very prominent. So anywhere you stand on South Sea Common, you can see 7074, and she really is this very striking design. So yeah. Fantastic-looking vessel. Yeah. So, because so I, I always assumed they were just all painted that kind of, well, the grey of this... Yeah. And they were, battleship, yeah. Battleship grey. In, in the early war years, 1941, 42, 43, they were. Um, but then in 1943, the Admiralty adopts this pattern. The US Navy, they stick with the grey, and you can see right. that in the So they just have one constant colour across, whereas the Royal Navy has adopted this. And you also see this on coastal forces vessels as well. This is becoming uh, a more commonplace camouflage pattern by D-Day. Well, I think it's absolutely magnificent. I think, yeah, this is the most extraordinary project. And um, when you come around the corner in the car and you see it, and you see it, and you, it, I mean, it's so striking. Mm. And... Uh, so evocative that the idea yeah. of that deck full of tanks all mm. the men down there the hustle the bustle the tension the um the anticipation and also that thing of course that on d-day it's a whole a whole extra day of it because they're delayed yeah i mean that they've been they've been loaded embarked from somewhere around here 7074 embarked her troops at felixstowe on the 2nd of june right. um, so they had an extra day waiting around on the river hour river oh, oh. A river, <laughs> I can't remember the name of now, up by Felixstowe, before she sailed early on the 5th of June. Um, and then, yeah, so you, you have several days waiting and then several days puking at sea um, yeah. before they get to the Normandy beach and, and beach early on the 7th of June. So the troops had a very long time on board. And yeah, there's only two tanks on there now, but with 10 on, there's barely room to squeeze down the length of the tank deck to get to the heads at the bow. And exposed to the elements as well. So if it's raining, you're, you're you know, I suppose you... You sit in your tank with the hatches down and yeah, and they bedded up in there. <laughs> they bedded down underneath their tanks because that was the only space where you could really lie down as well. So, yeah, it's, it's not designed for you know long-term accommodation, but that was the only way to get the fleet ready of these four thousand yeah. vessels well, for D-Day itself. I mean, all I can say is, if anyone wants to have a, a better appreciation of what it was like, then go and stand on the bridge of this LCT. Yeah, and you just, well, you just take someone with you. So you stand on the bridge, and then they're down on the tank deck going. Just, I need to get my tanks off now. Move it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you, you useless bastard. It's and he can really shout back good. at you, I'm going as fast as I possibly can, Major. Thank you very much. <laughs> Royal Navy will deliver you on time. And have, you know, recreate little moments into service yeah, tension. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, be, that's, that's exactly what you need to do. I mean, it is absolutely, it's, it's, I would urge everyone to come and visit this. It's just absolutely it's, it's incredible. It's beautiful. And what, what, what's really great about it as well, it's, you know, you can go to Belfast and see, you know, a battleship and he's got big pointy guns and all that. And, and you can go, oh, the might of the Royal Navy. But this is the, this is the, actually the business end of, of you know, you can have as many battleships warfare, as you want. It? But if you can't get your troops onto the your ground, troops onto the ground it, none of it's happening. 
This is absolutely essential to D-Day. D-Day is an amphibious operation, more so than a naval battle. And yeah, this is the key vessel of D-Day. And it's, you know, if, if the landing craft is going to be associated with anything, it is D-Day. And here we have a, a genuine D-Day veteran, beautifully restored, testament to the work of National Museum of the Royal Navy and Artelia UK, who were project managers, and ML UK, who actually did the work. They were the ones who, who cleaned the hull off, who reinserted lots of new bits. I know a lot of your listeners follow me on Twitter and they would have known of my involvement of it. I was just the one who was the most vocal on Twitter, but I was a very tiny part of this restoration process. And it's all credit really due to the NMRN and, and Artelia for project managing it, MLUK for doing it, and, and everyone else who was involved in, in really genuinely restoring a D-Day veteran. Well, thanks so much for um, showing us around it, Stephen. It's been it's just been, been brilliant. a cracking day, hasn't it? Been a cracking day, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cheers, Steve. So, Very yes, welcome. Yes, uh, belay that order, the hearties. Uh, I'm trying to wrap up yeah, in yeah, a nautical yeah, way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I get that. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> Sun's exactly. over the yard arm anyway. Yes. We'll see you all soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Bye-bye.